Gnarly. It might be the word of the day when it comes to the housing situation in Boise. Figuring out how do we make sure that our development uh, can achieve all of our goals to the extent possible um, is is a big gnarly question, right? Um, and one that uh, one that I think a lot of us are are grappling with on the daily. We pulled together a panel for an in-person event at the Idaho State Museum to look at the future of housing, specifically in downtown Boise. As the core of the city changes and evolves, what will it look like? Challenges, opportunities, and the future. That's next. This is the Boise Dev Podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming today to the Boise Dev uh, panel on downtown housing. I'm Reed Wiggins with Wafed Bank, one of the sponsors for today's event. So um, we're excited to have be here and hear about this important topic. I know uh, many of you have been, like myself, follow this topic closely. I look back to when I first moved to Idaho in 2013 and was looking for, you know, love downtown and look for a place to live downtown with my wife, but there were far fewer options. So it's exciting to see that fast forward nine years, kind of where we are today and all the options that um, have been, have been, are now available. So a bit about Wafed. So we're uh, based in Seattle, but have a commercial team based here in, in Idaho. Over, we're very active in the commercial real estate space. So excited to sponsor Boise Dev and their events. Um, just over the last 12 months, we financed uh, loans of roughly 400 million in the commercial real estate um, space. And so that includes roughly 1,300 in apartment units, uh, more than 600,000 in um, office retail and industrial space. So um, we're excited to continue to be part of that growth in Idaho. Um, so thanks for, thanks for um, having us here and thanks for, to Carly and Don for putting on this great event with a great panel. So. I'll turn it over to Don um, to host our panel. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. Make sure that everything's recording. We'll have a podcast of this later. Um, it's really exciting to see you all here. It's kind of like our email list that has come to life a little bit. Um, we didn't. We were. We had talked about opening this up to the public, uh, and we didn't. It's just members. So everybody in here is a member, and I appreciate your support. Uh, our other sponsor for today's events is, event is our Boise Dev presenting sponsor, Regents Blue Shield of Idaho. Uh, we're very thankful to their support to read into WAFED. Um, their sponsorship allows us to bring you journalism every day, and your membership allows us to do that. And I'm very thankful to each of you, and we've got some great uh, teammates, a couple of them who are in the room here, Margaret Carmel, who's taking a photo, and Gretchen Parsons, our managing editor. Um, so I wanted to say thanks to all of them. We have a great panel, and I'm really excited uh, to have these folks here. Um, We'll start right here. Nikki Hellenkamp is the mayor's housing advisor with the city of Boise. He works closely with uh, Mayor Lauren McLean. Alexandra Monjar is a project manager with the Capital City Development Corporation. Uh, used to work up in our, uh, our workspace, so I know Alexandra really well. Uh, Sheldon Rodriguez is the principal with SMR Development. Also used to work up in our workspace. I swear I didn't just book people that I like used to work near. Um, and then Katie Vila is the COO at Roundhouse. Haven't gotten to work on the same floor as her yet, but maybe that's coming in the future. Um, downtown housing is going crazy. I think everybody knows that. Uh, Margaret and I were kind of doing some work today, and we thought we'd do a little quiz. Who's up for a quiz? So. We looked on the Boise Dev Project Tracker, which hopefully you've all used, at all of the housing projects that are in progress downtown. And so our definition is from a project that maybe is just wrapping up, started to, started to fill up, like the Lucy and Thomas Logan on Grove Street, all the way to projects that are announced. And I'll ask you to shout this out. How many units do you think are in some process in downtown Boise? Shout some, unit, some numbers out. 2,000, 1,200, 16,000, 3,000, 4,000. Okay, uh, Kelly with Surpro is closest to the pin. There are 3,598 apartment units that are in progress downtown. Who knows if they will all be built? Margaret was like, what is the attrition on that? And it's like, we don't really know. Uh, lots of things are proposed and never happen. But I will say, so there's probably, 
I have a handy dandy list. I think Margaret's going to put in her story tomorrow so you can read it. Um, there's probably 15 here, but there's like three or four more that aren't actually announced. We've got the 10th and front site across from Simplot. I'm hearing maybe 35 stories there. Um, we have the Greyhound bus site, which they just announced that they were going to do housing on of some sort, but didn't give much more detail. Um, the, the Heath family owns uh, land across uh, along Grove Street. They've announced, or they haven't announced, they're looking at some housing options. So it's going to be interesting to see. You think 35, 3,600 housing units get built downtown, two people per unit. All of a sudden, that's another 7,000, 8,000 people living downtown on top of the 1,000 or so units that have been delivered in the last couple of years. So that leads us to our panel today and talking about all this rapid change that we're seeing. And I'm really excited to have all of them here because they all have unique um, experience in this space, and I think we'll have a good conversation. So I want to start with where are we now? If my TV producer, if I had a graphic up here, it would say, where are we now? Um, so Katie and Shellen, I think this is a good question for you. Um, let's talk about some of those new housing starts in the last few years. There's a bunch of roundhouse projects in there. Shellen, I know you've got some things going on. Tell us about some of the projects you're working on and that you're uh, excited to start with. Katie, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so we just came to market and are starting to lease up um, a project called Hearth on Broad, which is at the corner of 4th and Broad. That's about 161 units. Um, and then in our pipeline, we're actively working on, um, we own a seven acre site on the west end of town. Um, we call it internally the Whitewater site. So it's basically bordered by 27th Fairview Whitewater, and I'm missing one side. Um, and so that one, we have a development agreement with um, the city of Boise, and we're gonna hopefully break ground later this year on about 181 units on the west side of town. Um, and then we have a fair amount of land holdings downtown. So in between the Fowler apartment buildings and the Hearth apartment buildings, we own another, call it 1.3 acres. And we are just starting the planning phases of what will be a mixed use. Um, there will probably be a small apartment component to that, but um, it'll be primarily mixed use. So we're, we're still working on the programming for that. We saw some demolition on that site recently. Is that kind of getting ready for that? Um, somewhat. It was also, uh, we had an old office building there that, quite frankly, just needed to be torn, torn down. Shellen, you're working on something really interesting. Tell us about that. A few things, but I'm thinking about Idaho Street in, in particular. Yeah, it is interesting. Thanks. Um, Katie certainly has more and larger projects in, in the pipeline than, than I do with my partners. But um, the project at 18th and Idaho, it's on, it's facing Idaho. It's almost a half a block, but not quite. It's 48 units. It's about 30% completed. So the, you know, the wood's coming up on that. And it's, it is interesting because it doesn't use any um, federal funds, but it is somewhat affordable for a term. Um, we use CCD, uh, primarily CCDC land, which we competed for with other developers, and then we um, combined it with adjacent sites that we paid market rate for. Um, so it is deed restricted to different extents, but at the end of the day, it's about 100% AMI affordable, which I don't know if you guys know what that means or if, if you care, but it's about, you know, for like a family of four, 75000 a year is what you're making at 100% AMI, um, and what you can afford is you know 1600 a month for an apartment, generally, always depending on your family size and the unit size, et cetera. But it is, it is a pretty interesting one. Um, it used the housing bonus ordinance, with which the city of Boise passed in 2020, I think. Um, I think we were the first ones in using that, and since then there's been a whole slew of them. Um, so you can see how that type of... Um, policy, you know, does create housing. And then I have some other projects that, you know, I would call pretty close to downtown, but I think it depends on who you ask. I think that the footprint of downtown it should be larger than maybe what we've traditionally thought of as downtown. Um, but there's some affordable housing going in um, over by State and Arthur, which is, you know, it's well outside of what we think of as a footprint, but it's certainly on the transit corridors leading into downtown and um, you know in urban renewal areas and etc so those are two that I know of uh, that I'm working on in particular yeah and Alexandra I know uh, your agency is working on a whole bunch of things some of the things we've talked about 
you are the project manager, I believe, on a, a massive project around the YMCA. Tell people a little bit about that, especially as it comes to housing, because it's a lot of units, I believe. Yes, yeah, the uh, Block 68 Catalytic Redevelopment Project, we issued an RFP for two parcels that are approximately an acre total. And um, we've selected Eatland and Companies to Chase Mixus and Elton Companies as the development team to work with on that. So we are in uh, negotiations with them. If that goes forward, that phase of their master development plan uh, would include 450 units, and 220 of those would be in a mixed income project, and that also would have a deed restriction for rent rights to maintain affordability for your average um, Boise household. And um, so there will be a mix of affordability like with Shellen's project. And um, as part of that, we're also participating in a uh, structured parking garage um, to provide public parking and then also hopefully catalyze redevelopment on some of those surface lots um, that surround the area as well. Such an interesting area because there are a whole bunch of surface lots. I know the Christmas parade folks will be really upset because that's where they stage their, my uncle's on the committee, so I, I know for a fact they'll be upset. Um, but obviously places where flat lots for cars are right now can be put to better use. How's that, I mean, you, you've got a tight timeline on that. Is that project really moving along and, and cooking? I know you've got, a, 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 there's a next step later this year. Yes, we are aiming to uh, sign our disposition and development agreement in September. It's an aggressive timeline, um, but we are coming up on the end of our downtown districts. So River Myrtle, Old Boise District, and the West Side District. Uh, River Myrtle closes in 2025 and West Side in 2026. So um, it'll be, I think, down to the wire uh, on the project. So we're, we're moving quickly and we're working with our developer partners on that. Um, once those districts close, we cannot participate in projects in those areas anymore. So, And you own some land, right? So it's kind of like do or die here, get it going. Yes. Yeah. And then Kate, I'm sorry, and then Nikki, um, you are involved in higher-level policy with the mayor, but the city is looking at a project uh, that is really, truly affordable housing and an expansion of New Path. Is that right? What's, what's that? Yeah, that's right. So folks may be familiar with New Path uh, Community Housing. It's 40 units of permanent supportive housing uh, out on Fairview. So again, I'm not sure if that really falls into some people's definition My of definition, downtown, but, yeah. but we're going with Don's definition today. Uh, so uh, yeah, that project uh, has been in operation for two years and has seen a huge amount of success in terms of the uh, the health of the people who are living there and in terms of larger cost savings to our community. So uh, next step here, we're calling it New Path 2.0 until we have a catchier name, I suppose. Like the new New Path. The new New Path. Um, and so that's another 100 units that would be uh, next door to the existing building. Uh, and that project uh, just got submitted for entitlement, I think, last week. So yeah, be exciting. You each mentioned affordability. And affordability is, I think, something that has different definitions. And, and in fact, Margaret and I well know that people will get mad at us when we call something affordable if it doesn't meet their definition of affordable. People who've lived here in the Valley a long time think like 500 bucks a month is affordable. It's really probably not anymore. Um, if We'll just open this up. If you guys could talk about what goes in to trying to drive affordable housing and what you look at, and, and for, from the developer side, maybe what you um, need to make things even 100% AMI affordable, and from the, uh, we'll say regulatory side, maybe not the best term, but uh, for those of you from the public agencies, if you can talk about how you are working to um, drive affordability, and we'll start with, with Katie and Shellen. 
Sure. I mean, I'll take a first stab at this. I was um, working on a calculation the other day. Roundhouse is sort of interested in, in expanding into the affordable housing space, so I've been doing quite a bit of research um, to figure out, like, basically what the gap is. So what's the gap between building an affordable housing and a market-rate housing? Um, and roughly, I think it's probably about eighty dollars to $100,000 a unit is sort of the difference you need to make up in order to make the project pencil, if you will. Um, and so, you know, when we look at like just making a unit, you know, okay, we're going to designate 20 or 10% of our entire project to be affordable. I mean, that's a huge hit to the operating cash flow. Um, and the difference you'd have to make up is probably that, that 80 to $100,000 a unit in, in capital. How much is a, I heard somebody say on a different panel this week that each unit is costing between three hundred fifty and five hundred thousand dollars for an apartment unit. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, that's a house, right? Like that's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to keep up with the construction costs in the valley, as everyone I'm sure is so well aware of. Um, you know, our, we can barely keep our finger on the pulse of how quickly they're moving. Um, we've recently priced something in downtown, and I think total all-in construction costs, which includes land and all soft costs. We're looking at about $410,000 a unit. And as a good example, a few years ago, we built the hearth for $300,000 a unit. Um, and then your garden style, um, we haven't priced anything very recently, but last year we bought something out at $325 a unit. Um, and I think that that's probably moved up significantly already. I had a developer of a, of a non-housing project recently tell me that their bid for plumbing came back twice as high as it was six months ago. And they're just like, what do we do, right? Sean, do you have anything that you would add there from your perspective? Um, what would I add? I mean, I guess I would just say that um, it, it all comes down to, to financing and, and money and gap, right? And so, um, you know, how do you, how do you fill that gap? Well, you know, you get more money, um, you get more units, uh, density, um, you know, if it's not affordable with a capital A, right, if it's not, if there's some level of flexibility in what affordable means, and, you know, I could talk about that forever, but um, if there is some level of affordability, you can certainly decrease costs to families or households in different ways besides just rents, right, you know, whether that's utilities or transportation or all these other things that play into how much, you know, a person or a household can afford. But when you're dealing with, you know, what I, in the, in the realm that I generally deal in, which is, you know, I'll call it capital A affordable or HUD defined affordable, that's all out the window. And it is simply incomes, 30% of your income to rent, and that is an affordable rent for that family. Um, doesn't matter if they can walk, bike, or ride, or, you know, all those things. So I, I don't know if that adds on or not, but it really just comes down to, to money. So I've been told to speak up. <clears throat> I got a text message on my wrist. I won't say who. So I will speak up. We'll all speak up here a little bit, make sure everybody can hear us. Can you hear me in the back? <laughs> um, so let's talk about the role that your agencies play. Um, what is being done and what are you looking at to try and move the needle here on affordability downtown? Across the city, certainly, but specifically downtown. You want me to go first? Go ahead. <laughs> I'll fill in. Yeah, so for us, um, that would be, you know, the projects that we have, like Block 68, like uh, the project with Shellen on Idaho Street, where we can creatively use the tools that we have to assist um, in making a project pencil. Um, so when we dispose of property, we have the ability to discount the land based on a reuse appraisal, and that's where we get the rent restriction. So the value of the project is lower than the cost that it takes to develop, and we are able to discount the land um, to fill that gap. Um, we also participate uh, frequently. I think pretty much any of those projects on your list, we we'll probably have an agreement with them where we're going to help through tax increment financing with public infrastructure. Let's explain what tax increment financing is. Yes. <laughs> because it is one of those terms that we fly by. Explain that. Now you're going to... I know, I know, right? Yes. <laughs> wasn't prepared for this. Yeah. Okay. So uh, basically when it, we establish the value of a parcel uh, before it is improved, and that's the base value, and then once the project is done, it's reassessed, 
the increment value is the difference between the, the final project value and the pre-project value. And so the taxes that are received on that increment value come to the Urban Renewal Agency, and we can, our pr practice is to form an agreement where we reimburse a percentage of that to cover the eligible expenses, and those all would be public infrastructure improvements, whether that's utilities or streetscapes. Um, or, you know, parks, parking lots, things that are public. Fiber, yeah. all sorts of stuff, right? Okay. Nikki, I know from talking, we've interviewed the mayor a number of times. This is like priority A1, top of the list. What are you looking to do, and how are you looking at downtown as a place? I know there's a whole bunch of things that go into this. What's the mayor looking at? What are you looking at downtown? Yeah, so in thinking about how we define affordability, I think uh, considering the broad spectrum of definitions and the broad spectrum of incomes that we hope to see for people living downtown is a good starting place. And so if you look at the city recently, maybe not so recently now, last summer, did a housing needs analysis that essentially said that the city uh, needs to add something like uh, just under 2,800 units of housing a year for the next 10 years in order to meet its housing need. And that of that around 2,800 units a year, something like 77% of those units need to be affordable to people, to households making 80% of the area median income or less. So that is uh, a lot is <laughs> kind of an underwhelming way to put it. Um, and of that 77%, the majority of that is actually, actually needs to be affordable to households making less than 60% of the area median income. So when the city sat down and looked at the, uh, the units that were being permitted at that time, and started asking questions about, well, how much do you plan to charge in rent? And what's, you know, how many, where, where are we at now? How is this looking? What we saw was that we are seeing an incredible amount of growth in terms of housing units in our area, which is the good news. Uh, and the challenging news is that very, very few of those units are affordable to people making 60% of the area median income or below for all of the reasons that Katie and Shellen said. It's very expensive to build right now. So how do you, uh, with new construction, how do you get at this immense need for housing that is affordable to people who are on Boise budgets? Um, and so I think that when we look at that, at the level of need for households at those budgets, the city is really looking at that and saying, that housing at 60% area median income and below, it is unlikely that that housing is going to be built without some kind of subsidy, right? It's That's just what's needed in order to make the math make any kind of sense. And so when it comes to the city's investment, that's really where we're focused, is on that 60% area median income and below. How can we help those projects get across the finish line, particularly, and maybe I shouldn't say particularly, including in downtown, where of course you have reduced costs for folks because there is access to transit and there is walkability. Um, so that piece is obviously uh, is obviously really important. And then thinking through, uh, for example, with our partners at CCDC, thinking through, okay, if the city is over here saying we're going to focus our uh, our resources at the 60% area median income and below because we don't think these units will get built otherwise. Well, what about everyone else? Because we do have many folks who are in, uh, who are maybe making above 60% AMI but still can't find a place to live anywhere near where they work or within the city limits. So being able to, uh, to work in partnership and to kind of see this broad spectrum of housing need and being able to, uh, to coordinate and collaborate in a way that allows us um, to, with our partners, tackle different parts of that spectrum is, uh, is really where we're focused. And I think it's working in collaboration and coordination is probably the only way, uh, the only way forward. And for all of us to kind of stay head down 
um, and well, this is our focus area and this is where all of our attention has to go um, is probably not going to get us um, towards our goals. I had somebody share with me a pro forma about six months ago uh, for an apartment project that they were looking at downtown. It's not something that's in the pipeline right now. And the pro forma said, if we can get $2,800 a month for a studio, this works. And I went, <laughs> what? <laughs> like my first apartment here in Boise was, was River Quarry, right? And a fairly nice spot. And it was, well, second apartment, $650 a month. And I was like, this is a really nice apartment. And I was like, this is, I'm spending a lot, right? And so then I think like $2,800, if you're working at Goldie's Corner, uh, I, I don't see how those numbers pencil. Or we've got Josh from JD's Bodega here. He pays his staff really well, but how could they afford twenty eight hundred dollars a month? And you could still go into the bodega and buy my two sodas for two for three fifty, right? Like, how do you guys look at those economics and figure it out? And this is a question for all of you: when you're drawing up plans, when the city's looking at plans, when CCDC is looking at plans, and you look at these rents. How do you make that pencil and square with what wages look like right now? Not an easy question. <laughs> I mean, I'll take a stab at it, right? I mean, you don't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the answer, and it's, it's brutal, but it doesn't work. So until we do things that help make it work, or until costs come down, right? I mean, it's, it's, I said it's about financing, and I say that meaning you know sources and uses. But I, I was looking at JD, I go in there all the time, and I'm like, I know he pays his guys well, because your guys are there, they've been there since the start, right? But I'm looking at my little numbers here going, okay, could they make, say, say I was a single mom working at JD's, like maybe I'm making 20 bucks an hour, maybe 25, I don't know, maybe 25, so I'm making 50 grand a year. Like, I'm in that 60% AMI. So I just want to be, like, we talk about 60% AMI, 100% AMI. We talk about what, you know, we use, the, we use that term a lot. But what does it actually mean? It actually means, like, for a single person, it means, you know, 30000 a year. For a single mom, it means a little bit more, closer to 40000 a year, right? It's based on household, in, uh, household size. But the, right now, the, the, the dollars and cents, the math does not work. At a major point. Interest changing, and you know, who knows what's gonna happen? But like, it doesn't work. I had a major employer speak. Um, I heard last fall, um, and there was a CEO, and, and they made a really good point. Um, they said, if if you're not raising your people's pay at least five percent right now, they're getting a pay cut, and that goes into everything, right? Because housing costs are going up, and all these things are happening all at once. And so we're talking about affordability, but goalposts keep moving for everybody. And so I think that goes really well into our next section, which is what are those opportunities? And we've touched on a little bit of them. There's maybe some federal help. There's TIF. There's things that could be done at the legislature. Um, land, capital coming in from outside the market, what developers are trying to do. What do you all see as some of the big opportunities that are coming down the pike and how do we as, as a city, frankly, as a, as a collective community, work to figure that out? I think one opportunity, I know we're, we've been talking a lot about affordability, but one opportunity is also to add market rate housing. Um, any housing is needed housing right now. And if you have a new market rate housing project, you know, maybe that allows some people to who have the means to move up into the newest and best place. And some of those older existing apartments become available at lower rents because you can't charge as much for an old place as you can for a new one with all the highest finishes and everything new. Um, the other opportunity, I think, is something Shellen mentioned and Nikki is transportation. And so really making the infrastructure for active and affordable transportation reach the people who need it and make it safe and comfortable to use. And so we're looking ahead at the State Street District as a transit-oriented development district, and a big focus of that will be infrastructure that allows people to walk to the bus stop. And a nice efficient bus system that will allow people living all along the corridor to come to work downtown. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about transit. It's later in our thing, but I think this is a good place to talk about it. Uh, I have a, a, a cousin, a niece, essentially, who's a teacher um, in Southeast Boise, and my wife and I went to her baby shower, uh, and she lives in Cuna, in like deep Cuna. Cute little house, cute little starter home, and I was talking to her, and I was like, where, where, do, where are you working? And she's like, oh, I work at White Pine. And I was like, White Pine, oh my gosh. That's a long, because we had just driven, we live in, in East Boise and we'd driven there. And, you know, when I was growing up in Boise, the teachers kind of lived near the school, right? Like, I knew where some of my teachers lived because they were, and now the idea of live, a school teacher living near a school is hard. However, Sheridan is her name. She drives from CUNA to White Pine and back every single day. And there's a cost to that that we don't think about. Downtown actually has some opportunities to help that hidden cost of transit. What are those? Bus is one of them, but what are some of the other things that can go into that to maybe make that, this easier? And we are going to talk about parking, <laughs> because of course we are. Yeah, I mean, just what the story you were telling really resonated with me. Um, I was, it made me think about my eighth grade um, science teacher who lived in Star and commuted in to North Junior High, and we were all like, Mr. England what are you thinking? And he was like, it's not that far. Uh, <laughs> like, it rhymes with far. Yeah. It's <laughs> it seemed very far to us. Um, but yeah, I mean, that old mindset of like, well, you got to drive till you qualify, you know, is part of what has gotten us where we are. This idea that like, well, if you can't afford to live close here, you just got to keep going until you find the place you can't afford to live. Like, well, I mean, yeah, but then it bites us in the way that you're describing that now we've got folks who in the, who would be able to bike or walk or have short commutes to work who are now in and out and, and spending time not only spending their money on gas, but also spending time in traffic that they could be spending with their kids, in their communities, doing a million other things with their lives and time other than sitting in a car. Um, and that that cost is one that I think um, it's, it is really, really important for us to, to grapple with and to think about as we're looking at what are the opportunities for development downtown um, and how do we, yeah, how do we make that possible for folks who are who are working, I mean, normal people jobs and is, I guess, one way to put it. Um, but how do you make it possible for folks to actually live close to where they work and so that it benefits our entire community, not just that one, that one person or one household? Katie, I heard uh, Casey Lynch, who's the principal in your firm, speak a couple of days ago. And he gave a number, I don't actually remember the exact figures, hopefully you can bail me out here, but he said a single, um, a single stall of structured parking is like fifty to $60,000. Yeah. On top of the, what we were talking about earlier, how do you figure that in? And are you doing one stall per bedroom? Are you doing one stall per unit? Are you doing less? And how do you figure that out? So there's not a giant parking garage with two apartments on the top, right? So, I mean, it's interesting. So maybe like going back in history a little bit, when we built the Fowler, we originally had an agreement with CCDC to purchase a portion of our parking garage. Um, and CCDC purchased from you. Purchased from us, right. And they were going to own and operate the parking garage. Um, and the reason was, is like, at the time, that was the only way we could make the, the entire building pencil. Um, it was really the first mid-rise in downtown. Rents weren't there. The only way to get the entire thing to financially make economic sense was to sell CCDC a piece of the garage. Um, and we were about to deliver. And there was some rent growth in the market in general. And we actually negotiated with CCDC, you know what, we really need the parking because people in downtown still have cars, right? And if we want to lease up 159 apartment units, we're not going to be able to lease them up unless we have parking spaces to give them. Um, and so we ended up taking it back. The really maybe ironic thing was at the end of the day, the spaces that we took back from CCDC because, I mean, there's a cost associated with renting a parking space still downtown. The residents were not willing to pay that cost, and a lot of them found alternatives. And so when we finished lease up, I think that our parking ratio of actually utilized spaces by residents was 0.9 spaces per unit, which was really interesting. So not per bedroom, but per unit. Per unit, yeah. 
Um, and so exactly what that meant on a per unit basis, I didn't really dig into the weeds, but when we built the hearth, we were able to be a little bit more conservative with our parking ratio with that in mind. Um, and I think we're parked just a hair over one-to-one at the hearth, and so we have a little bit of, of flex room. Um, but what we really learned was people, I think there's still enough options downtown, whether it be surface parking lots, et cetera, that help balance that so that people feel like they can live at the Fowler or the hearth and find a spot that's reasonably priced not too far away. Do you see that changing? I mean, um, downtown has some services. There are a a few options for groceries, JD's Bodega, um, Trader Joe's, Winco. But if you're at the Whitewater, you're hoofing it to the Albertsons at 17th State, which is a bit far. Do you do you see that that's going to change over time? Do you think that you'll be able to bring those parking levels down and maybe make things a little bit more affordable, or are we kind of stuck here? I mean, I think that like really the like answer lies in like what does public transit look like for Boise in the future? And I think I heard someone say once, a da- no downtown is a good downtown if it doesn't have a parking problem. Um, and so the fact that we're starting to get to that point where we really have a parking problem may be a good thing for the vibrancy of downtown. Um, but something has to change with regard to public transit if you want people to really not have cars. Okay, so I got two questions on this. First for Alexandra and then for Nikki. So Alexandra, CCDC is still the largest, and I know Matt Edmonds in the room, I still believe the largest owner of parking, but not the majority. Some people think they own all the parking, but owns a significant chunk. With Block 68, there's a lot of parking involved in that because there's a lot of uses. And I know there's, from sitting in the room during conversations, there's been some discussion about how they do that and do they do a reduction? Where does that stand and, and how are you looking into the future? So you're trying to park the YMCA and things like that, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> That's what... You That's want to just come up? <laughs> <laughs> That's like I want to answer. We are discussing that right now with the developer, but the idea is that... Um, Hopefully we will have a shared parking solution. So between the the uses that will be in and around that building, um, they'll use you know have peak demand at varying times of day. Um, and from our projections, we think that garage will be pretty much full. Um, but. Yeah, I guess was <laughs> the question. No, I mean, I, th- I think you answered it, right? You're trying to balance off a bunch of needs. Yeah. I'm sure that the agency would love to, well, I'm not sure about that, would like to build as little parking as possible, but you're also trying to be like, you can't have no parking, right? Right. Yeah, I think that the reality of Boise is that people have cars and they need to park. So, I mean... We are trying to, yes, hit that sweet spot of parking is expensive, so how much do we need that will make a profit to the agency or pay for itself to the agency? Um, And the the developers ask the same question. It's really expensive to build parking, so how does that fit into rent? Do you offer it in addition to rent? Um, And I think we looked up, just as a factoid, that it was 0.7 spaces per unit is kind of the average that we're seeing with some of the recently completed apartments downtown. Is that right? That's at the low end. At the low end, okay. He said that's at the low end. He's not mic, so we'll have to... (laughs) 0.7 to 1. Well, I just just want to add um, from from the... In thinking about it the way that, uh, you know, maybe private sector would would think about it... um, you know, the private sector doesn't like regulation. Alert. If anyone didn't know that. But um, I do... I do Sean think, used to work at CCDC, <laughs> just FYI. I have a weird... I do both. I do public-private. But I do think it's a really important thing, um, and we, we have enough history as, you know, like in the Pacific Northwest to think about the Portlands and Seattle that did take away parking requirements, and we saw the market respond, and we saw micro units, and we saw zero parking regulation, and... I mean, I think it's still maybe out for debate, but a lot of that is coming back, right? A lot of developers and lenders are not building zero-parked units anymore, to your point. But developers will take risk. Like, it is what we do. And so I... I mean, I'm always, I always like to take the opportunity to, 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 to make a point about policy when I have folks in the public listening, but like, 
give us opportunity to take the risk, right? So give us a zero parking. We're not gonna park everything in downtown to zero to Katie's point, right? We're gonna do what we think we can make money doing and we're gonna do what we think our, we can rent units doing. So just give us the flexibility to go low and you know, let, us, let us take the risk. So to my knowledge, there's only been one project built downtown recently with zero parking and that is the Vism Development um, Vanguard, which is right next to American Cleaning. And I remember on Twitter, which is where all of the best thought happens, somebody was like, this is great, it's a zero parking development downtown, because there is no requirement for parking in the core of downtown. But Clay Carley's company built a huge Mondo parking garage literally across the street, and without that, I don't know that that project would have happened, right? Exactly. Without that, that project may not have happened. So let the market figure it out. Yeah. Right? Like, it did. It, did. it will. And there might be some hurt. You know, developers might go under. There might be some pain points. But, like, let, let development occur. Take, let us take risk is kind of yeah. what and that all makes, I'm trying to say. No, I think you're right. Like, <laughs> With Thomas Logan and the Lucy, they actually don't have parking in them either. And the B-Sides also doesn't have parking. They all do have parking around them and available to them. And yes, with, um, with Clay Carley's projects, that garage was built with that in mind, that though the way to bank these apartments was because there was parking a block away. It's not like under your building, but it's close enough that it's convenient for those who need it. But that also made, you know, the costs are in that garage, and now they're not included in the Lucy or Thomas Logan in the construction of those buildings or in the rent of those buildings. And for Thomas Logan, the financing on that was so close that there's no way that it would have worked with the park. Yeah, and so the Thomas Logan has units at 40% of AMI. Like, really, I mean, I think even, even Boise Def Facebook group readers would say that it's affordable. I mean, they're really good rates, especially for downtown, but there's only like, yeah, that Facebook group's great. Um, Nikki, I know that you're the mayor's housing advisor and not the mayor's transit advisor or the mayor's climate advisor, but when I've talked to her and I, I asked her, what's your top priority? And she's like, well, there's three and they all tie together. And those are kind of the three. When you're looking at solutions for housing, what role does transit and climate play in that? Because they all kind of balance off of each other. City's got aggressive climate goals. It's trying to figure out transit. How are you working together with all those different pieces to, to drive affordability and to drive new, new units? You said, and I know this is a long question, so I apologize, but you said that you're looking for 2,800 new units a year. And at the start of this conversation, I was like, hey, we're getting 3,500 new units downtown. Isn't that a lot? Well, that's not even two years' worth of units. And obviously, that's just downtown. But it goes quick. It does go quick. Yeah. <laughs> Long questions from Mr. Elliott. I'm talking too much. Um, so I think your question was about the interplay between housing, transit, yeah. and climate. And yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about uh, what it means to try to do transit-oriented development in a, in a setting where, you know, you've only got bus lines. And so you think about, okay, well, I'm gonna do my transit-oriented development here. Sure hope the bus line doesn't move <laughs> because suddenly I'm, I'm no longer transit adjacent. Uh, and so really, really thinking through, okay, how, kind of to my point earlier, how do we work with our partners? So for example, if Valley Regional Transit is focused on, we're gonna do best in class service on State Street great, then we have a little bit more reliability in terms of we can build affordable on State Street and know that the folks who are living in those units will have will likely have access to reliable transit. And especially with our partners uh, with CCDC and their urban renewal district there saying, okay, maybe we can stack hands on this to say we can try to achieve some transit and climate goals and housing goals together. Um, but really thinking through what does it mean for us to prioritize, for example, our affordability goals and climate goals sometimes are in conflict with each other. I think that's an important thing to just be frank about, that if you wanna build uh, highly energy efficient uh, units, then they are going to cost more, in at least up front. And you know, there are certainly, uh, you know, those considerations around. Well, in the long term, your costs are going to be lower with utilities, all of that. And those conversations are important to to continue to have because they need to, they need to happen together 
to your point and um, figuring out how do we make sure that our development can achieve all of our goals to the extent possible um, is is a big gnarly question, right? Um, and one that uh, one that I think a lot of us are are grappling with on the daily, um, including myself and the mayor's transportation advisor, who sits maybe about as far away from me as that piano. Um, so we have lots of these conversations, just you know, informally, the two of us. Um, but I think it really does come down to that piece of, you know, transit costs of families, households, transportation costs, and their housing costs are very, very linked. And so if we can, to Shellen's point, if we can address some of that, uh, some of the impact of both of those costs on a household's budget, whether it's by making it so that it's possible for them to have a lower transportation cost or it's possible to lower the housing costs, ideally both, then we can really start to have some kind of impact on can I afford to live here? Can I afford to live downtown depends on, well, okay, is do I have reliable bus service to get to where I need to go? Am I gonna be able to get to the grocery store? Am I gonna be walking two miles with my bags on either shoulder and you know trying to, to make that work? Or do I actually have a transit option that will save me save me money? And is that coupled with a housing option that I can actually make work on on my salary? So yeah, I mean there it's really important that we have those conversations. Um, together. Boy, I mean, it's just a very, I think you said gnarly, and it is thorny project pieces with a lot going on, and you all play a role. Let's talk about where downtown's going to be in 10 or 20 years. Everybody's going to still go to the Boise Depot, and they're going to look down, and even out this window, you can see the Aspen Lofts, which wasn't there 15 years ago, or in at 500, and we've started to see some buildings 35-story tower, maybe. We've got a 19-story. I know Oppenheimer Companies is working on a 27. I don't know where Jeremy is. A 27-story tower. Um, what's that skyline going to look like? What do you guys think it's going to look like in 10 and 20 years? Margaret did a great story about a year ago on Austin and some of the challenges. They had this, this mantra of, if we don't build it, they won't come. Literally, that was like the, I think it was sort of a joke, but it was actually their approach. Like, we're not going to do transit, we're not going to do infrastructure because we don't want people to move here. Have you heard that around here before, right? Well, guess what? The people came, and Austin is the 10th largest city in the country. And there are major problems that are way beyond what we're even facing right now, and we've got issues, right? So what do we look like in 10 years? I'll just open it up. I mean, so I think, you know, Roundhouse sort of, I don't know how many people are familiar with us, but we relocated our headquarters from Los Angeles to Boise in April of 2020. And a big reason for the move was prior to 2020, we had seen that migration patterns were starting to change and that people were leaving California and other states and moving to the Mountain West um, for, at the time, affordability, which I think that that factor has started to wane a bit, um, and just quality of life and the natural amenities that we have in the Mountain West. Um, And then the pandemic hit and it felt like that just went on steroids and that accelerated incredibly. Um, I don't think that's changing to your analogy with Austin. I think that if we don't prepare for it, we're gonna, be in shambles and I think we're at this like really amazing point in time where we have the ability to do things differently, to really study how what other cities have done and to pivot um, to, to do the right thing. But it only takes a very small fraction of people to leave California, to give an example, to add a huge population increase to Idaho. Um, and so I think that's happening. And so what the landscape looks like, I don't know exactly, but I know it's gonna have a whole lot more sky, sky rises than it does now. Well, I'd add or, or um, maybe maybe question, like, like, will it have sky rises, right? I mean, at the prices that we see now, like, we're not having 35-foot, maybe, Jeremy, gosh, I hope I'm wrong for your sake, but it's too hard to build that type of construction. We ha- we've seen them entitled. We haven't seen them started. Um, and I wonder why. And I, I don't know, but my guess is just pricing, and, and that will even out. Um, will it even out in time for those buildings to be up in 10 years? I, I don't know. Um, 
And honestly, we've not really talked about interest rates and inflation a ton here, but there are some people who are pretty nervous about that right now, especially because people are like, well, we don't know if construction costs are gonna go down, but all these other things, and, or labor is gonna get easier, but all these other things are adding up. Is that true? I mean, do you feel that? I mean, so I think it's a, it's Nobody a two-part like, question. Nobody wants to talk into existence, right? It's a two-part question, right? It's like interest rates and inflation. And um, if you look at like the real interest rates, i.e., the um, you know the interest rates less inflation, um, I think we're realistically still in a low interest rate environment. And I think that real estate, especially multifamily, is incredibly protected. Um, in an inflationary environment, we're turning leases every single year and marking to market. Um, and so I think that there's a realistic possibility that you build a, you know, a high rise for $500,000 a door and you're gonna find those renters and costs are gonna have gone up in all of these other buildings and when you deliver, it's gonna, it's gonna pencil. To your point earlier, you're, just, you're a developer that's taking a risk. risk. Yeah, yeah. So I'd give it, I'd give it maybe a little bit more time than ten, but um, but I think we will see the the amount of money that's here is not leaving, it's coming, in in regards to debt, in regards to what people can afford, um, and so I don't think that's going to go down. So building five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars door, which is what we've been doing in California for however long. Um, you know, eventually we, we can do that. I don't I don't even know right now if you can do that with type type one construction. <laughs> so we're starting to see kind of started like downtown's kind of had four eras, right? You had first European settlers came here and it was kind of a ramshackle type of place and it was like that for a while and there was some single family housing downtown and then we kind of evolved into a second era where you had shops and people still live downtown and maybe a few offices. And the era that we've kind of been in recently is it's mostly a place where people work. And really before a few years ago, it's like the Idaho building, the Eidenhaw, CW Moore, and a couple of others were it. There wasn't a lot. And now we're moving into this time where it might be all and, except maybe the ramshackle part. But we're seeing all these things come together. Do we, I know this is a housing event, but do we still see offices downtown? Do you think that will stay? Do you think these will kind of all blend together? Will we get shopping if we've got all, I mean, there's, you want to go buy a shirt downtown, unless it's at the North Face, there's not a lot of options, right? Do you think that that will change as people move down here? What are your guys' thoughts? It's like the trends in real estate. What do we think? Yeah, predict the future. Yeah, I hope. I, don't I hope there will at least be one tower in downtown in the next five years <laughs> for Block 68. But um, I think that I think the biggest thing that will change is our concept of downtown and like how we define that and where that will be. Um, I think a lot of times we just think about it as these like core blocks around 8th Street, but it really it's, you know, all the way up to here and down to Fairview and, and Whitewater. And so I think we'll start to see more of what we have on 8th Street, which is like walkable, people-oriented places. Um, and I, I, I hope at least that that spreads um, to wider places and to more neighborhoods even beyond downtown. I think you'll still see some commercial. It's definitely going to change um, with delivery, but I think there will always be a place for storefronts and the marketplace, which is like the heart of a city. So I don't think that that goes away completely. Okay, we're going to wrap up with this. We're going to start with Nikki this time, so you're going to get the pop quiz here. What are you most excited about right now? Oh, I think one of the things that is really exciting for me is living. This is going to sound so cheesy. You're going to be sad that you started with me. No, I mean, we live in a community of people who still have the capacity to be, um, to look at the fact that people can't afford to live close to where they work and be upset about it and not just kind of shrug their shoulders like, well, what do you expect? Like that's, it is what it is. Like we are a community that in most people's memory was a place that a lot of people 
with work in all different kinds of jobs from different backgrounds could afford to live. And so we, in some ways, we're not uh, challenged by the lack of vision that I think that sometimes if you live in a place that has been very economically segregated for a long time, it can be hard to imagine that it is possible to have a place that is economically diverse. And that is not our problem here. I think we are still in conversations I have with people in in comments that elected officials make, that regular people make on Facebook. People look at that. They people look at you know your cousin niece, um, <laughs> a school teacher living in Cuna and commuting into Shadow Hills, and we say, oh my gosh, there's something wrong here. Instead of saying. Yeah, well, at least she's got a, you know, sounds like she's got a cute house and like commutes suck, but it is what it is. You know, like that's not the conversation that's happening. And so I think if we can hold on to that, onto a vision of our city that is about how many skyscrapers will we have and what will the retail mix look like and all of that, but is also about who lives here, who is with us, and how do we how do we hold on to a community that is representative of of what makes our city City vibrant. How do we make sure that um, that artists can still afford to live here? How do we make sure that people who make the restaurant scene that we love operate can afford to live here? How do we have those conversations? And I think that I get a lot of hope. This is a very long, corny answer. Apologies. I I feel a lot of hope when, even when I hear people speaking from a place of of deep concern and sadness because that concern and sadness means that we care and that we we want to see something something different here um so yeah that's that's i'm excited by everyone's concern and sadness <laughs> it's an optimistic answer though ultimately right yeah alexandra top hat <laughs> i know what i'm excited about yeah um, block 68. Yeah, block 68. <laughs> I, am I am really excited to be um, with CCDC at this time. It's it's a really transformative moment for downtown. We're seeing uh, the fruits of these districts bloom into real public spaces that I think create the type of environment that lends itself to like what we call Boise kind. The urban environment, our built environment, has true impacts on our psychological state and our ability to trust each other and our ability to um, make connections with people. And I think that that is what drew me most to Boise and what I love and what will keep me here. And I'm really excited to be part of an agency that builds those places. And I'm excited to see them all get done. Shellen. think that I would have figured out my answer. Um, <laughs> I thought you were pausing for dramatic. No, no, I'm pausing to be like, oof, I'm just not an optimist by nature. Um, I, I, uh, well, I mean, I'm most, I'm most excited about um, seeing how we can handle, we, and I'm talking the city of Boise instead of maybe a larger region or state, but how we handle the struggle of growth of affordability, of transportation, of climate change, right? Like, like I'm more excited to sort of see how it pans out and watch from afar or watch from within, maybe is a better way to say it, but because it, it's hard, right? I mean, it, it's it's hard, it's dirty, it's na- it's gnarly, and um, and it's it's kind of interesting to be right in it um, because when I when I worked in California, it was sort of already done. Um, when I lived in Montana, it wasn't happening, and so now I get the opportunity to sort of live it. And that's exciting. Katie? Um, as I alluded to earlier, I think that like we're really at this launching, plat- launching pad where there's the ability to make change and the ability to like do good for the city and think about the way we grow in a way that other cities have have already failed. Um, I think the the city of Boise is doing really good things around affordable housing that I think is exciting. Um, I think there's some members of our community working on a transportation initiative that I think is really exciting. Um, And then just as we think about the long-term growth, the notion of Boise kind, I think, is something that resonates with so many people here. And I think if we keep that culture alive, um, you know, this place is going to be amazing in 10 years. 
it already is amazing, but I think it'll continue to, to foster that, that culture and growth. That's a great note to end on. Katie Villa, Sheldon Rodriguez, Alexander Monjar, and Nikki Hellencamp, I really appreciate you doing this. You all came to play and I think um, added a lot of enlightenment. Margaret's going to class. She'll have a story on this tomorrow, so you can uh, read about that. Thank you all for being here. Wanted to thank Regents Blue Shield of Idaho, Wafed Bank, ServPro, my original Boise Dev sponsor is in the room, uh, the Idaho State Museum, the folks at White Dog, and Carly May for helping us make this event happen. I want to thank my wife, who is, who is also here. Um, this will be a podcast, so you'll be able to listen if you missed something. Hopefully, you'll be able to hear me better there. Uh, Margaret will have a story. And I've got an announcement. You guys are going to be the first to hear about this that I'm really excited about. Um, so last year, my dad did a book called Idaho Waters. My dad is a photographer, a visual arts photographer. And he was kind of like, hey, I think I might do another book. And uh, Kara, my wife, was like, you should talk to him about maybe doing a Boise Dev book with him. So we are in production, just started on a book that we're calling Boise City of Trees. It'll be a coffee table book like this. Um, and uh, Margaret and Gretchen, Gretchen's actually going to head the project up. Um, Anna Daly and I will all contribute to that. It'll be coming out this fall, so look for that. Really excited about that. I was excited to tell you all today. So that's coming down the pike. And uh, most of all, thank you everybody for your support.